Hello. Hello. It's been some time. It's been a hot minute. It's been a hot second, but we're back in I, the saddle again. I can take full responsibility for the hot minute and second. Um, you see, I started medical school. <laughs> As one does. Which is like a big, a big moment um, in anyone's life. But a moment uh, most it, pleasing to me in my career. <laughs> what? Have you not seen that Im- that that mo- that video? It's fine. No, I have not. I'm sorry. the The point was that I um I'm really busy now, and I went from doing nothing to doing a lot all of the time. Literally went from like quarantine, wh- so much free time to hi. Here's here's a body I'm looking at. I'm taking home some bones from class. Mm-hmm. I do. I bring so. home the bone box on occasion to study bones. Oh, the bone um, box. And I think it's really cute that it's called the bone box. We have had at least one classmate's dog eat the bone box bones, um, which is a fun little foible. That's a real thing that happened? Um, Yeah. She took the dog to the vet. The dog was fine. But the vet said it actually happens more often than you think. What does that mean? Hello, vet. <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, we're like the medical school is a big like institution here. So she said it. she has seen it multiple times in her career is dogs eating med students, bone box bones. Oh, med students, med students, bone box bones. Nothing quite. Oh, the sequel to Bird Box is Bone Box. Anyway, that's it. That was the whole (laughs) joke. There's a lot. There's a lot more to med school than the bone box. I actually don't use the bone box very often. But when I do, I find it to be kind of silly. Um, It's like. And also horrifically morbid. Yeah, it is just people's bones are are they're different it's not one person's bones right it's no like, it's a smattering the smattering and you only get like one of each you don't get like two legs you know um mm. but that, somehow and they're worse. also like they're also old like because you don't get rid of them so the boxes have been around since like the 60s you know um and they just replace them as needed so they're old dead people's bones hi um, i've got your bones yeah, we were wanting to, me and my roommate, study them before the last exam, right? That makes sense because we have a practical where we have to like identify stuff. And it was a beautiful day outside and we were like, oh, we want to study outside. And there was a 15 second window where we were like, do you want to go to the park? And then we realized that it would be very inappropriate and irresponsible to bring the box to like a public location. Just sitting out with your picnic and your bones, pulling them out of the box, laying them out on the yeah. ground. Well, so kids are playing a few feet away from you. Well, hopefully we decided, more than a few feet. Ha-cha-cha. Yes, because COVID. But we decided against that and stayed inside the apartment. <laughs> so you hid in your apartment with your bones, which is better. We did have the discussion that if the apartment were to burn down, they would find human remains from like multiple people. And yeah. that's terrifying. It's the multiple people that gets me. And it's for some reason, the only one of each is more upsetting to find i think <laughs> than if you found like a whole yeah. whole set of yeah. legs just the one to be fair we check them out so like there's corroborating like oh we know that the box is somewhere um so like we would it would be easily defensible um but it's just a little spooky if you think about it for too long i prefer to think about it as like this is literally exactly what these people wanted to be done with their remains and like they wanted to give their bodies so that students could learn and i'm getting to like be part of this great legacy that they have because these bones have taught generations of med students and i'm just part of that so i try to think of it more in those terms but they gave you full permission for their bones they said take my bones yes, i don't need them they did 
one time when I was in high school, we were reading Frankenstein and we had a, um, what are those things called where you sit in a circle and you talk and it's horrible? Socratic seminars, my yes. absolute nightmare. Which also I've never, ever, ever, even once oh experienced in college. They were so like, if you were in AP class, they were like, you have to do this because you're going to have to do it in college. And I've never had to do that in college. We have discussions in no universe have I in or would I experience them calling it a Socratic seminar. But anyway, we had to do one of those. I think actually, you know, I take it back. I had one class where we had they were similar to Socratic seminars, but they weren't as formal. Like it was more like we were going to be discussing a thing we read and the professor was like, our class is too big to open this up to everyone. So this week we do half and next week we do the other half and you need to participate yeah. in one of the two. Um, but you got to like pick which one you wanted to participate in. Yeah. And it's the formality it was, of the high school Socratic yeah. seminar that is upsetting and inaccurate. I, yeah, it's so we had one Something, of those. No, yeah, something about the Socratic seminar format, just while we're on it, you can cut all of this in the end because it's probably interesting. I felt like I remember going into like a fugue state during those, like, oh, I lost all sense of myself, an anxiety became, induced fugue mm, state, like, it's just nothing, yeah. it's blank up there. I can remember we were discussing the crucible which love um of course but what is the name of the guy who dies the main guy in the crucible i don't know john probably the, probably <laughs> you know Just chances and i are. remember getting so mad at this guy who was in my english class and my argument we were on opposing sides of argument was that john proctor john proctor um took the easy way out by letting himself die as opposed to facing like i was arguing that it was selfish and stupid and he should have just faced the social pressure um like the social stigma so that he didn't leave his poor wife and children alone unable to provide for themselves um and i got really heated on this point of view i don't know if i actually agree with this point of view to be honest i don't mm -hmm. really think i do um but you got so mad at the time but Something about the like stress of the Socratic seminar coupled with like a nemesis sitting across the circle oh, a arguing the nemesis. opposite thing. I lost I lost who I was, what I believed in. I my entire existence boiled down to one point, and that was that I disagree with John Proctor's decisions. <laughs> There's nothing more dramatic than an English class nemesis. There's nothing ooh. So, ooh, ooh, there's nothing worse. It's so intense. Teenagers are already al always already intense. Teenagers are just like that. TM, TM, TM. Because you're a teenager. Something about it in English class. Maybe this is just because I'm I'm gay and a nerd. But something about English class nemesis was just like, uh, uh, hmm. it was like Batman and Joker levels of of intensity. Um, I which to be fair, I actually have a. I will raise you one. You will raise me one? Mm hmm One Batman Joker I think nemesis. the ultimate academic nemeses are devil's advocate guy and social justice warrior girl in a sociology class. Have you ever seen that dynamic play out? I've seen, like, hints of it because I've never been in an actual sociology, sociology class, but I've had, like, dudes who are approaching devil's advocate and, and like, girls who are, like, like cool and alternative i've seen that battle play out in multiple english classes but but that specific sociology class i wouldn't want to be in the room i would have to leave i'd be like this no is no too no much. it is deeply painful and i'm sure this is very relatable to a lot of people <laughs> if you've ever taken a sociology class 
you have experienced this because inevitably it is required for multiple majors. And so you get the most random smattering of people oh, yeah. and it is like the just a class. recipe for disaster. It's so the, so in the Socratic seminar, when we were talking about Frankenstein in English class, what happened was this guy, we were talking about um, Frankenstein taking people's bones and just like robbing graves and stuff to, to make his little dude. And I was like, that's not good. Just like the most mundane, like, yeah, maybe don't rob rob graves. And the dude tried to argue that it's fine to rob graves because they're not using them anymore. And I was like, where, where am I? Who are you? How are you sincerely? He was like, so genuine. <laughs> no sanctity for human remains. No, like, like, like the most genuine that he was was in that moment. And I was like, huh and i just i do think about that a lot because i was getting really heated about it because i was like are where am i but he was not he was just like haha yeah like they're not using them and i was like uh. and then i couldn't <laughs> even say anything and the teacher just watched it and that was not what we were supposed to be debating about frankenstein that was not the point of morality about frankenstein like that's not what mary shelley is arguing in frankenstein is that grave robbing is bad like we were not supposed to be discussing that but Man, he went on about it. Anyway, grave robbing That's is apparently a, okay, according to. I mean, that was a big. That was a big thing in that era, though, because it was like illegal to do. Um, like you weren't allowed to like touch dead bodies. Um, so anatomists actually had to grave rob a lot. Wait, um, wait, wait, what? Yeah, um, all of the like fathers of anatomy were grave robbers because the church wouldn't allow them to like dissect any dead bodies. But they were like, but we have to know about these dead bodies so we can figure out live bodies so they would like go to fresh graves usually like paupers graves um or like criminals graves and steal the bodies and then like have to dissect them in secret oh my god yeah that's like how anatomy started was as like an illegal underground body practice wow <laughs> yeah this is our podcast about anatomists and grave robbing hi welcome to it <laughs> don't mind us Oh, it's been so long. It's been All I've so done is think long. about anatomy and grave robbing. So It's been so long. I don't even remember who I am. Who am I? I'm gray. How do we even do our intro? I think I'm I think I'm gray and you're Marcy. And we do mm -hmm. that thing first. Mm -hmm. And then I say something like, and I'm a writer. And I'm a reader. And this is Bookends. A literary podcast. Where we talk about books. It's definitely not how we usually do it, but that's no, fine. That's gets okay. That's okay. Gets us in the door. Because you know what? We're going to talk about this more next episode, but we are going to be doing a, a sort of rebrand of, of of book it ends, of bookends, because this is this format is very fun, but it's not sustainable for a medical student and me. <laughs> I'm not nearly as busy as a medical student, but I had to I had to say something. So we're going to be changing it, and we're going to talk about that more next episode, because this is going to be the last. This is the final half of the theme we started 700 months ago, which is fairy tale inspired novels. What even was the first book we read for this theme? I, what was it? Let's check. Girl, Serpent, Thorn by Melissa Basher-Doust, which we read and uploaded in like August or something insane like that. And now it's October, and it's... the. the not much has gotten better, but you know, it has been a few months. You're in med school. I'm in. I'm in mm -hmm. college. I'm in in new new York. 
if you're list if you've listened to the last episode, you might be saying, now Gray and Marcy, you're a bunch of fucking liars because you did not read and review the new Twilight book. And to that I say, we're sorry. We didn't know the book was like 700 pages when we made that pledge. And then we realized that the audiobook <laughs> is 25 hours long. <laughs> and we said, no. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Stephanie Meyer. <laughs> oh, no. I quite literally do not have the time for that. Like, not even like, a, oh, my God, I'm so, like, I, I don't. I can't. I like cannot too, do that. You got, you got bones to look at. You can't be looking at Stephanie Meyer's Edward's point of view of, like, just the first book, I think. Why is it 700 pages long? Why I feel like it's just been long? a while since Stephanie Meyer has written anything, and it was probably just very cleansing for her to just she was get like, it all out there. I, and I don't, even if I cared about it, even if I was really, even if this was a book like Annabeth's point of view of the first Percy Jackson book, if it was 700 pages long, I still wouldn't read it. You know? Like, yeah. I, as yeah. much as I would love that and I'd like read some of it, I couldn't do 25 hours of audiobook of that. It won't happen. It can't happen. Like that is like, um, what is that series that you, that I started to read, but I haven't finished that you like city, city of some, the David bad trilogy. Yes. Which I, I highly recommend. It's, it's very good from the parts that I've read, but I look at the like 700 pages of like fantasy action things happening. And I'm like, how does, how did it have so many pages and words? And over seven miles over here with just that, like that much with just Edward being sad and weird, I guess. I don't even, it's too much for me. No, I agree. But you know what? This really is kind of a year of like, like authors we haven't heard from in a while, like jumping back into things. Christopher Paolini has a new book out. Who, who is that? Aragon. Oh, huh. To know he was still. Oh, is it good? It's totally different. It has like decent reviews. Um, I'll probably read it like over Christmas break or something because I just I love him. You yeah. know I do. But um, yeah, I never read it. He's Eric out and about. I never got into it. But he's I reread chilling. it this summer and it holds up. Good. I know a lot of people don't like it, but it's I heard like the a, movie. It's a horrible. fun. No, the movie's really bad. <laughs> it's a fun fantasy about a guy who's a dragon writer and there's like war. So like it's just everything you expect it to be. And if you don't like what that is, you're not gonna like it, you know? Yeah, that's fair. You can only you can't expect things to be other things than what they are, is how I feel. You know? Like yeah, if a book exactly. or a movie is like, I'm a rom com, don't be angry when it's not like a horror movie. You know? If a book is yeah. like I'm a fantasy about dragons, don't be like, Well, I wanted more interpersonal family drama it's like i mean and not that you can't not that you couldn't have that which i mean hey but don't expect things that are against what they told you that they're going to be yeah here on bookends we are very much about understanding something within the view of the genre it is supposed to be in oh yes i have been taking a genre fiction class at school that's been interesting what does that mean um basically it means that we've been talking about like different genres so like we read one that was talking about the fantasy genre and we just got finished talking about gothic horror and we read Mexican gothic, which was really, really good. Um, yeah, it's just us learning about different genres and like some of the things about it and like notable people. I had to do a project about um, a, a quote canonical unquote author. Um, and so I did a presentation on Chester Himes, um, who is like a very influential um black american like crime and detective fiction writer from like this 
60s question mark yeah um and my boyfriend who's also in that class did one on danielle Steele. so an icon an icon she's I've never actually so read much. anything she's written. I just I just love her. She I like her as a concept. I don't know her person. She has nine kids. What what? How how does she have time to have nine kids when she's writing two hundred books? Yeah, she has like nine kids. She has like I'm sitting here in shock books. and awe. Yeah. Um the fun thing about Danielle Steele to me, not to have a tangent, um, but the fun thing about her to me is that apparently her books aren't like good. But she's so well loved mm. and she's so prolific that you cannot escape her. And I do there's something about that is that is like like I'm usually very like, um, you know how I feel about James Patterson. You know how I feel about like um sacrificing quality for quantity. But there's just something so undeniable about her being like, here's another romance with the exact same characters and formula as the last one. And yes, you're gonna read it. You're welcome. Like that to me. There's something about that that's powerful that isn't necessarily powerful to me about James Patterson being like, and here's a book that makes no sense. Please buy it. You know what I think it is? What is it? It comes back to it's not trying to be anything else other than what it is. Yeah, she's not. She is not like like pulling one over you. Like she's not lying to you. She's just giving you her little romance books. Read it, please. She also has apparently written children's books, which I didn't know until recently. Um, So I've been learning a lot about genre in my school and getting a grade to do that uh my teacher is also pretty cool he is a published writer so that's fun because sometimes we'll be talking about things in class and i'll be like haha i know about that publishing thing haha so that's it what were we talking about um bones bones <laughs> no 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 bones. no we were talking about switching up the formatting oh yes so we're gonna be switching that up and we will talk about that more uh, next time for this time, though, what are we up to? What are we doing? What happened? What's going on? So we're we're finishing the last half of our like fairy tale inspired book choice, um, but we also have a segment that actually is not really related to that at all. So like that's okay. Wait, should we explain that we it's changed related the, to book? the book? Oh, we did change the book. Oh, I forgot. Okay, so what was our original pick? So Do our original book, book, sure. Our original book is Cinder was Cinderella is dead, um, which. The reason we had to change it, I I read all of it anyway, but the reason we had to change it is because there wasn't an audiobook available. Um, I'm not totally sure like why, like how it happens that sometimes audiobooks just aren't made. Um, so there wasn't one available. And for Marcy, who is, as we've said, extremely busy looking at Bones, um, she you just didn't have the time to read it. So we had to change it to one that we knew had an audiobook available. Yeah. So even though that book is phenomenal and you should go read it, we had to change it to Dark and Deepest Red by Anna Marie McLemore, which I don't think I'm saying the last name correctly. But when I Googled the pronunciation, the Internet told me you don't get any search results. So that's it. So that's what we're reading. I think. Is it just McLemore for her it last name? It might just name? be McLemore. Or Mick, McLemore. McLemore. Maybe more. It's MC. Anna Marie McLemore. Yeah. Yeah. McLemore. My brain, because of the McElroys, I'm like, Macklemore, and it's not. <laughs> it's probably not what it is. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. Same issue there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I am sad that I didn't get to read Cinderella. What is it? Cinderella's Dead? Yes. Yeah, um, because I was actually looking forward to reading that. Maybe yeah. one day when the audiobook is available, I'll get around to reading it because you said you liked it a lot. Yeah, so. I hope so. It was It was so... It was... I was already expecting it to be really good, and, and it lived up to my expectations. And the cover... Ugh, this book also has a 
Dark and Deepest Red also has a gorgeous cover. I'm just going to say. I I love covers. They tell you not to judge a book by it, but also <laughs> I do. So We all fun. do. We all do. So anyway, what's your segment? What's happening? All right. So um, we have... <laughs> I'm so sorry. True. In order for my segment to make sense, I have to talk about Dark and Deepest Red for a second. Um, so Dark and Deepest Red is... A, I think before we like really get into it, because we're going to, you know, review the book, but I think it is just like a really fun concept, um, like unique, interesting, compelling. Um, so it is this, it is two different stories, you know, interwoven. One being the <laughs> dancing plague of Strasbourg, Germany in, or is it France? France. I think it's France, um, yeah. In like the 1600s, the 16th century, or it's the 1500s, 16th century. Um, from the point of view of a Romani girl and her family unit. And then alongside that is the tale of two teens um, in some vaguely modern American town, right? Who, and this is where it has this really cool magical realism element that comes in. Um, and it's a take on the Hans Christian Andersen story, right? The Red where Shoes. Where there's like the Red Shoes, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's about this town that has this like magical what is it called something that comes over the town every year the 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 glimmer or the glimmer yeah so it's like once a year this town magic sets in and something happens to everyone in the town and then it goes away and so this year the glimmer has to do with these red shoes and so it has this really cool magical realism element and then it ties back to the dancing plague of Strasbourg in France in the 16th century. So you get like this historical fiction of an event that actually happened um, with this magical realism of something in current day. So, Gray, before you read this book, what did you know, if anything, about the Dancing Plague? Um, I knew a little bit about it because there is a puppet history uh, episode on YouTube about it where they talked about I think it was it might have actually been a different one though to be fair because there's been a few different it was the same it was the same one Mm -hmm. okay cool yeah so I watched that and I know that it was like I I, but I don't really know why it happened like I know it's like a a mass hysteria situation but I never I don't remember like what the reasoning for why this was what was going on specifically is so I basically just know that it happened and that people died and that they tried different things to make it stop them, and a lot of it didn't work. So, so for anyone who doesn't know, the dancing plague was a plague of dancing, like exactly what it sounds like. It was contagious. One person started dancing, and they couldn't stop. And then more and more people started dancing, um, and people ended up dying. Their hearts gave out. They had strokes. You know, they were dancing until their feet were bleeding, and they were basically dying from exhaustion. So pretty horrific. <laughs> um, but it was just dancing and it happened actually what's interesting is it's happened more than once and more than one place throughout history um, the event in Strasbourg I think was just one of the most like one of the biggest and that we have the most records of so that's why it has kind of become the quintessential one and I think over 30 people died in that specific dancing plague so it's just a wild concept and we now attribute it to mass hysteria and so that is what i want to talk about today is what is mass hysteria you know it happened in the 16th century can it still happen today what would it look like now so so let's uh let's kind of jump in here this was kind of fun for me because unintentionally this ended up going a little bit more medical it's obviously very like psych and i wasn't a psych major in undergrad you know i'm not 
like that's not my like specialty (laughs) I don't know that much about it but it was fun for me because I got to read some like academic articles and that makes me feel fun um (laughs) so first of all the the wildest thing I learned while researching mass hysteria um, is that it isn't just something that happened in like yield times. So our first recorded evidence of a mass hysterical event or what we think was because obviously this this verbiage didn't exist back then. Like this is all retroactively saying, "Oh, that must have been mass hysteria." Um the first one we have is actually in the 1400s. It was a nun who bit people and oh. then that behavior spread throughout other convents all over Europe. Huh. A common theme is going to be nuns actually. Hmm. Which there's some interesting theories on why that might be. Another one was a nun meowing like a cat, and that spread to other nuns in the convent. I like that one. Stop. Mm -hmm. There's the dancing plague, like we talked about. Some of them are a little bit more rooted in maybe legitimate like fears. So there was the Irish fright of 1688. Basically, a bunch of English towns like mass panicked, preparing themselves for this like what they believed was going to be a bunch of Irishmen coming through to kill them. Um, which was not founded fully in reality, but like somewhat a reasonable fear given the conflicts of the day. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like there you could you could argue the connection between those things pretty easily, as opposed to the yeah. nuns meowing. Exactly. Um, the Salem witch trials have often been attributed to a case of mass hysteria, all of witch hunts, really. Um, <laughs> there was something called the writing hand epidemic, where like a tremor would start in like a young girl's hand as she was writing, and it would spread and it would lead to like full body seizures. Wow. Um, more recently, um, the War of the Worlds radio broadcast reaction is considered an insta- like a moment of mass hysteria. What is that? Mm-hmm. Have you heard of that? It sounds familiar, but I... I it was um, early 20th century. They were reading the book War of the Worlds, which is about a Martian invasion over the radio for Halloween. And people tuned in after they announced what they were doing and thought it was a news broadcast. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my <laughs> so God. So you can imagine the panic. <laughs> Jesus. And so It's really funny now, but... <laughs> so what did people do? Just They thought out? the world was ending. They reacted as if they thought the world was ending. Yeah. Oh my god. That's yeah, insane. you know, people jumping in their cars and running to the country, gathering their loved ones, like panic. Did anyone die? Um, I don't know for sure. Okay. I'm not sure if anyone died. That's okay. I cannot be quoted on that. Um, more recently, there was a laughing epidemic in 1962 in Tanzania. Um, some schoolgirls started laughing, and then it spread to like a hundred other students, and eventually to surround villages. That's upsetting. More recently, even more recently, in the 90s, 99 actually. Coca-Cola had to withdraw 300 million units of its like Coke products because more than 100 people in Belgium and like North France started complaining of cramps, nausea, and like other physical symptoms after having the drinks. They couldn't find any evidence of anything in the products, and it was reported to be panic because it was like maybe fueled by discovery of this other compound meat. So like the public was already worried about being in their food. And all it takes is one person feeling bad after having this product and it spreads throughout the whole country. Which um, There's also some theories that UFO sightings are actually just mass hysteria. Hmm. And more recently, anthrax scares since 9-11. There's some examples of someone, of people coming into the ER thinking they've been exposed to anthrax and they bring like the envelope that they think is bad with them. And like nurses and staff in the ER will start showing anthrax symptoms. And it's found that 
there was never anthrax. Everyone was just having a reaction to thinking there was anthrax. That's insane. So that's a lot. There's a lot of different examples. You can see how that spans from literally dancing and laughing to like vomiting. It's a very wide range of things. So that is kind of an issue if you're a psychologist and you're trying to define what it is because there's no good singular definition of it necessarily. So there's kind of a few different ways that it's being defined. Um, It's actually also not called mass hysteria. That is like the colloquial name. It's actually called mass psychological illness because the word hysteria was actually removed from like the psychology um, vocabulary in the 50s. Because wasn't it like originally about like women are acting weird Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, so the word hysteria comes from the word like uterus in latin it's the same word for hysterectomy removal of the uterus so hysteria was originally meant to be a catch-all term for whenever a woman was like not acting how you wanted her to act you'd say she was quote hysteric right that's where we get the word hysteric from is to act like a woman oh Um, that's horrible so it's really sexist and damaging actually and so that's why they act they removed it out of the psychology like vocabulary um (laughs) because the connotations of it were just too negative so if you're talking about it like if you were to look want to look up like academic articles about this you would search mass psychological illness not mass hysteria um but if you say mass psychological illness people don't necessarily know what you're talking about (laughs) so here's a little quote from like one of um, the articles I read, it is defined as the rapid spread of illness signs and symptoms affecting members of a cohesive group originating from a nervous system disturbance involving excitation, loss, or alteration of function, whereby physical complaints are exhibited unconsciously and have no organic corresponding etiology. What does that mean? (laughs) Basically, it is the rapid spread of signs or symptoms. They could be nausea, vomiting, headache, shortness of breath or they could be laughing or dancing or meowing so wide range of symptoms um, that are rapidly spread throughout a cohesive group a group that is somehow connected and there is no physical reason they should be happening you can't find anything wrong in like the actual body there's no environmental reason you know there's no toxin floating around or poison or anything and so that makes it really really hard to study you can't make a randomized trial for this you know? Yeah. There's there's not a good way to study it necessarily. Um, you have to study it as it pops up throughout the world and you can't control anything about it really. It also makes it really hard to define because it, the symptoms can range from panic to like vomiting. <laughs> and those are very different, obviously. But all that being said, there it's actually happens way more often than you think it would you know it seems like when i was scrolling through documents some mass panic events seem to happen every 10 years or so if not more frequently and it's actually hypothesized that it is really underrepresented and underreported because it's so hard to tell when it is that versus something else so the also interesting thing about it is you can see throughout history the presentation of mass hysteria is very dependent on the social construct of the day how people viewed the world may it like affected what symptoms showed up and how it spread so it starts out with something like dancing or laughing which i think not laughing laughing's more recent sorry that one was kind of out of the norm for um <laughs> like the trend but it starts out with something like dancing in strasbourg in france um which you know they hypothesized at the time is it demonic possession is it punishment from god i mean those are let's think about it if you get sick in 
the 1600s. You got three options, right? It's like demonic possession, punishment from God, or something's actually wrong with you. Right. And if the doctors can't figure out anything's like physically wrong with you, you got you have to figure out how to address one of the other two options. So that is the response that would often come in situations like this. Um, but you can see like more recently mass hysteria veering away from necessarily like those kind of symptoms towards something that seems more medical. So for example, um, in the Gulf War in the 90s, um, there was a missile attack on Israel by Iraq, and it was widely feared that that missile was going to have chemical weapons. There weren't any chemical weapons, but 40% of civilians around that attack reported shortness of breath, like difficulty breathing, because they thought there were chemical weapons. So it's not necessarily that their anxiety is not unfounded. It can be founded on a real threat, but it is a presentation of symptoms that is not based on anything happening to you physically. It can be based on what you believe will happen or what you think will happen, which is just that like mind-body connection is crazy. Um, and actually, a lot of people think it is a type of conversion disorder. Do you know what conversion disorder is? I do not. That's what conversion disorder is kind of like this on like a single person scale. So um, it often happens with people who experience trauma. They will and there's a lot of theories as to why it happens. Obviously, no one really knows why it happens. But one of the theories is like you cannot really process your trauma and there's no real disconnect between your brain and your body. And so part of the way that you process trauma is physically. And so people who experience traumatic experiences or like high levels of stress, it doesn't even have to be like a single trauma. It can just be stress will experience physical symptoms that are unexplained by a physical cause. So a headache that won't go away. There are people who have had whole like limbs go numb or be paralyzed and there's nothing wrong with them physically. And they believe it's this thing called conversion disorder where your brain doesn't know how to handle something that it's processing and it has this physical presentation of it. Very interesting area of like research. And it's very much developing. Like this is pretty recent that we're starting to understand that this even exists. So if you're interested in it, conversion disorder highly recommend looking it up. It's crazy. But some people believe that mass hysteria is like a bigger version of that, you know, applied to more than one person. It's also fun because we have social media now. So we are now getting some evidence that they can be spread via social media. Wait, there really? was, yeah. That's so funny. previously we were kind of looking at it and there needed to be some sort of you saw or heard it happen, like you were there and that's how you got it. Um, but there was actually an outbreak in 2012, so recently, um, where some teenage girls in New York started showing Tourette's-like symptoms and it spread to a bunch of other girls like in their school, which is sort of the traditional sense. But they posted a video on YouTube and other girls started showing those symptoms just from seeing it, as well as one 36-year-old woman and a teenage boy. Oh, my God. So that's crazy that it can spread even through seeing a video of it. Your next question might be, Marcy, can I get this? This is terrifying. Um, and unfortunately, my answer for you is probably, yeah, most of us could. <laughs> cool. Fine. So as with everything else about it, it's not super well understood. But it seems to be a combination of circumstance and individual susceptibility. It's not that you have to have the individual susceptibility, but it, it makes you more prone to it. So as far as individually, people who are more extroverted and more neurotic tend to be more likely to be, um, what's the word, not prone, but vulnerable to this versus um, circumstances. So we see through history those that women are 
way more likely to be affected. And it's not because there's anything wrong women. It is hypothesized that it's just because of the higher levels of stress that women historically are always under. Um, In addition to it being a socially acceptable way to break out of norms, if that makes sense. Like not conscious, like no one's wanting. I want to make that clear. No one's faking it with any of these. No one's saying, I'm going to puke now. I'm going to pretend I can't breathe. They actually feel that, like they physically feel that way. They are actually puking. They are actually dancing. No one chose to dance to death, right? It is out of your conscious control, but it is hypothesized that it is a unconscious way of breaking out of a stressful situation. It is a maladaptive, a bad way, like it is obviously not productive, um, but there's a hypothesis, at least or out there, that that's what it is. Um, for example, a lot of the earliest cases we have are nuns who, especially historically, were often forced into the convent by their family for um, socioeconomic reasons. They lived highly regimented lives in celibacy and poverty. I mean, that's a stressful, that's a stressful life. Similarly, more recently, following the Industrial Revolution, we saw a lot of outbreaks in factory workers, actually, who, you know, were working horrible hours and horrible conditions. Um, and that would spread like wildfire throughout these factory workers. There's an example in Singapore in the 1970s um, of like an outbreak of like seizures that couldn't be traced back to anything, you know. Right, really, uh, a big one was, I think this was also in Singapore, um, in a factory. It was called the June bug outbreak of 1962. And they basically thought there was an insect causing them to get sick. There wasn't. They were just getting sick from what we now think was mass hysteria. Um, but those affected were more likely to be working overtime and more likely to be providing the majority of their families. And so the people who were most affected were the people under the most stress. And similar, or not similarly, but related, the people who are most affected were often those with the strongest social ties. So they're the most susceptible to like social influence. Um, and I just think that, I don't know, that's wild, right? I'm not crazy. This is very strange. No, it's insane. It's yeah. very, very <laughs> weird and interesting. So um, all that to be said, it could affect anyone at any time, depending on the circumstances. It's often seen around moments of high stress, high anxiety, um, chronic stress seems to be a major theme throughout it. Um, and you might be asking yourself, but what do, you, what do you do about it? How do you fix it? There's been a lot of strategies to fix it depending on where and when you are, right? So like we said, if you think it's demonic possession, exorcism is a very popular strategy for treating uh, mass hysteria. However, it is not recommended. <laughs> Um, some of the like leading psychologists on this have said that actually the moment you think it is psychological, you have to shut down any other explanation because if people believe it is something else, they are more likely to keep experiencing it. Um, so if you can get them to believe it's psychological, it is easier to stop versus if they believe it's a curse. Well, then when the local, you know, medicine man comes in and that doesn't work, like, it only makes it worse. It only heightens their anxiety. So they actually like recommend like they recommend isolation. So don't let anyone else in or out of the area if you can. Don't let it spread any further and try and let them know if you're able to tell that it's a psychological illness, let them know that. Um, And then the biggest thing, figure out what the original stressor was and see if you can fix that because most likely it is a reaction to stress and you have to figure out how to take that stress away. Um, And you can see how this would be really difficult. That's a really complex um, answer, right? You can't always take that stress away. If this person is worried because they're their sole 
income provider for their family, how do you fix that? And so I think it's a really interesting intersection of kind of medicine and illness and like social work and seeing how we know that, and this takes it back to like a public health like perspective too, we know that people's socioeconomic circumstances have a profound impact on their health. They actually have more of an impact on their health than even their genes. We know that for a fact. And I think this is a really like concise, clear way that we can see that um, and see the complexity of it. So that's my little spiel about uh, mass psychological illness. And it's really interesting. I thought I was going to get in and do this research and it was going to be very like in and out. Um, and then I actually was able to go a little bit deeper. And there's just so many examples of it and they are so diverse. It's And they're all over the world. It's crazy. Well, they seem also to be like, like some of them, like the the people who thought that the Irish were coming to kill them for some reason, or people thinking after 9-11 that um, the anthrax or um, people thinking there's stuff in the in the air that's going to hurt them, things like that. Those those make sense, but it seems to be that there's more where it's just sort of like, like the dancing and the laughing can make a little bit of sense to me in that it's a physical, like laughing is a physical thing, dancing is a physical thing. The meowing is still what's getting me in terms of like, why like that's so crazy to me that the brain is like focusing on that and then it spreads that's so that's so crazy yeah it's and i'm one of the sources i read um they said it well was in a stressful or abusive work context mass hysteria and its accompanying symptoms symptoms what let me start that in a stressful or even abusive work context mass hysteria and its accompanying symptoms can provide a means of putting up resistance and forging a way out um and you think about like those nuns the, I did not realize also that's something I learned. I didn't realize that nuns in that day and age, like they didn't want to be nuns. I they were forced either. into being nuns. I thought it was because, like, oh, I'm here because I want to be. No, their families couldn't take care of them because a daughter was a burden, right? They either couldn't afford to keep feeding her or they couldn't afford a dowry to marry her off. So they sent her to the convent and that's not where she wanted to be. Wow. Um, and it was not an easy life. I also didn't know they lived in extreme poverty. That's upsetting. Well, that's the thing. They take oaths of poverty. So like they're not like starving, but they don't eat like extravagant foods. They don't have more than what they need to survive, basically. Which is stressful. So that makes Which sense. is stressful, yeah. yes. Huh. That's crazy. But I mean, I can totally see how I mean you could blame that on witchcraft easy if you don't have any understanding of psychology. Because we still don't really know what it is. We just have better words to describe it, but we don't really know how it happens. Yeah, it definitely it definitely makes sense that people when they saw people dancing themselves to death were like, surely this is a demon's work. Like, I oof oof. Especially when you think about like people today will just blame things on ghosts all the time, and it's like there are re- there are other reasons for this, but we are just going to blame them on ghosts. So of course, people in the olden days are going to blame things that we still don't even have an explanation for on stuff like ghosts and demons and things. That makes perfect sense to me if I were an yeah. old person, an olden person in the 1500s. Yeah, like it's not cool that they burned people at the stake as no. witches. No, no, no. But also like I get why they thought witches might exist. It, I I would think of it more as a, um, if I were in that day, I, I well, maybe I wouldn't because, you know, whatever. But like it makes more sense to me to be like, this is a demon that we can't see doing this versus like that girl over there is doing it. That one feels it feels insane to me, but... Ah, but you must remember the misogyny. Yes, I've, I'm forgetting the misogyny. I'm forgetting the misogyny. And in this book, the racism. Mm-hmm. Ooh, both. It's a fun intersection of the two. Speaking of, 
book time. <laughs> I was about to say racism or the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, well. So, like we said, we read Dark and Deepest Red by Anna Marie um, McLemore. And let's get into it. Summer 1518. A strange sickness sweeps through Strasbourg. Women dance in the streets, some until they fall down dead. As rumors of witchcraft spread, suspicion turns towards Lavinia and her family, and Lavinia may have to do the unimaginable to save herself and everyone she loves. Five centuries later, a pair of red shoes seal to Rosea Oliva's feet, making her dance uncontrollably. They draw her toward a boy who knows the dancing fever's history better than anyone, Emile, whose family was blamed for the fever 500 years ago. But there's more to what happened in 1518 than even Emile knows, and discovering the truth may decide whether Rosea survives the red shoes. With McLemore's signature lush prose, Dark and Deepest Red pairs the forbidding magic of a fairy tale with a modern story of passion and betrayal. So that is Dark and Deepest Red. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. This book was good. This book was good. Which is always a good way to start. So I guess I guess let's just get to enjoyability. Let's just go down the line. Let's just do it. I haven't done this in so long. I don't know who I am anymore. But I have no flow anymore. I, I don't have know what no to do. Flow. I have no flow. None. Enjoyability? What'd you give it? Sorry, I had to readjust my computer screen so I could see everything at once. Um, I gave it a four point five. Very high score very high score very high i don't score. really have a necessary like reason for the half point off so much as just a feeling that like there's like maybe like two things probably that could be tweaked to make it like it more you know what i mean like it's yeah sometimes it's, not... it's just in the gut you just know yeah it's not even like there's anything wrong with it it's just like wasn't absolutely perfect for me and therefore it's not a five but that being said a 4.5 is pretty dang good i very really good. enjoyed this book like I'm very from... glad beginning to end i was i was hooked i liked it a lot so yeah i feel good about that i gave it a four i've read some of anna marie's other stuff and this is very signature them in terms of of the the plot and the atmosphere and the writing and the characters i obviously really enjoyed it but i think i liked the other ones that i read a little a little bit more so that's why even though it's a high score it's not uh, quite as high as yours but I did still really like it. Yeah. I also just think I really like historical fiction and I really like magical realism. So this book was both. <laughs> yeah. I've been trying to get you to read to read their stuff because they are just like basically all they write is magical realism and like fairy tale-esque things that are just just so beautifully written and so up your alley. I'm like, please read all of their other stuff too. And, they're, and well, they are like getting them out so quick. They've got so many books. I was going to say, when I was Googling how to pronounce their name prior to, like, all of this, I was looking through the, like, also buy section. I was like, ah, dang, this is a lot of stuff that's, like, in my to-read pile, yeah. and I did not realize. Yeah. Yeah. They, they like, as an author, make me feel very hopeful for sort of the publishing scene and um, the future or whatever, because... When their first book, their first book came out, I think in 2015, and they've been basically coming out with one a year since then. I'm pretty sure. Um, and the first couple were not super big books, 
I didn't hear about them for the most part, which isn't to say that they were like, you know, really small or anything, but they weren't, I wasn't hearing about it. But the past couple of books I have been hearing a lot about. And so like, it makes me feel like, I feel like there's this idea with, with writers when you're debuting that if your debut isn't huge, then your career is, is over. And like the idea that it sets the tone for your career and that you can never, you know, write other successful books if your first isn't successful. And not that I'm saying that their first book wasn't successful, but there is there are ways to go up. Like you don't have to come out the gate with a seven-figure deal in order to be successful and well-known and prolific and to get the recognition that you deserve, you know? And so I just love, on a personal level, looking at their works and being like, yeah, I'd like, I, I just love that for them. Because literally they had, so they had Dark and Deepest Red come out this year. And then they also have a book, I think it's called Miss Meteor coming out with a, another writer that either just came out or is about to come out. And then they have another book that is that they, they wrote on their own, not with someone, coming out, and I think at the beginning of 21. So they have so many things happening right now. And I'm like, I can't keep up. And they're all beautiful and they all sound wonderful. So I just, that's my, just my spiel about Anna Marie. That's it. And no one, no one is doing Latinx magical realism with trans characters like they are. And they're doing it <laughs> consistently and well every time. And I just love that. So, yeah. 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 Um, I also want to add in terms of enjoyability, the, the romances, like the relationships in this book. They're so the wholesome. The romances are really good. Also, the, like, um, When the Moon Was Ours was the other one of of Anna Marie's books that I that I read. I think that's the first one of theirs I read. And um in that book as well as in this book there are there's like a brief sex scene, very very like tame in terms of <laughs> it's not super explicit because it's still a young adult novel and stuff, but both of them were between a cis girl and a trans man in both of the books. And that is the only time I had ever when I read When the Moon Was Ours, that was the first time I'd ever read a sex scene with a trans character in it. And it was just so important to me. And it was, it felt so good to be like, that is there. And that is like, and, and this male character who's trans is the love interest and is attractive and gets to be in love and sweet and like have this thing with I don't remember the name of the characters in that book, but in this one, it's um, Lala and um, what's his name? Alifair. Alifair. I was going to say Alistair, which is not anything, I don't think. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I just, it's so sweet. Also, not romance, but um, I don't think I've ever read a book about a Romani character. And that's not a culture. Yeah, that I, I absolutely know have not. Yeah, and so I was, and I didn't know that's what it, what was going to um that was going to be a part of it going into it because um, um, Anna Marie writes a lot of Latinx characters and this one, obviously Rosea is there as well. But so I, I just wasn't expecting, I was expecting it to be that um, Lala was Latinx. So then when she was Romani, it was, it was really interesting to, not that this book is like a, a deep dive into the culture and the history, but it, it's definitely more than I've ever gotten from from just reading YA and it was really cool to see that and to like to learn a little bit more about it um I just thought that was really that was really neat 
So. Yeah, I know very little about the Romani like group. <laughs> um, I don't think I've ever like had a conversation with someone, at least not like knowing um, they were Romani. And I feel like the most, I mean, like the most I know about it is like bad stereotypes. And oh, for sure. Do you remember that there was a show on TLC? I believe. <sighs> yes. And, and like I knew, that's it. Like I knew a girl in high school whose name was the slur. Like that's what she called herself, and she was not. She was not Romani. She was very white um and talked about that so that's how i know that she was not but like th- th- so the most that i know about outside of like when i've briefly looked it up or from reading this is the stereotypes and the sort of brief like oh and they were also persecuted during the holocaust and then never really anything else um yeah it was interesting like getting to i don't know it's like i like reading about in consuming content about cultures that are not my own or that i don't know very much about um you know varieties of spice of life whatnot (laughs) do you want to move on to balance yes let's go ahead uh what'd you put um i gave it a three and a half balance is a weird category um i think for me it just took me a little bit to get like fully and equally engrossed in both storylines um, I was a little bit more immediately into Emil and Rosea than I was Lala, although at the end, like I was equally like into both of them. Um, but I just there were some moments where I just really wanted to keep hearing from one point of view and then I wouldn't hear about them for a while. Um, I felt like maybe it could those pieces could have been paced out a little bit better. It is hard when you're doing it from three separate point of views because obviously, like, that means that by the time you get around to that point of view again it's been two chapters um (laughs) so for that i give it a three and a half not to say it wasn't very well done it was very well done but that's why i gave it more than a three because a three is average but um i just felt like there was a lot of moments where i was just like okay i need to get back to whatever else is happening which maybe that's a good thing maybe that's actually driving it forward but you know I gave it a three for similar reasons. Um, the chapters were pretty short, like I want to say like four pages each. And so there was a constant switching between what was happening. And in some ways it did, in some parts, I think it was very, it it, it drove it and it kept the pace going. It, I didn't feel slowed down by it, but there were other moments where I was like, wait, no, 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 I want to, no, stay there. No, stay there. And we weren't able to. The other thing is that, and I'm not sure that this is a criticism I have, I'm just curious about it. Rosea's point of view is first person. Emil and the Strasbourg timeline are not first person. And I'm curious about why, why specifically Rosea was first. I noticed that um, Lala's was not first person. Um, I did not notice that Emil's was not. Really? I That was one of the first things I picked up on was I was like, oh, oh. I'm in, I'm in a different world. And I, I wonder if that might have something to do with the access to interiority that the author has to Rosea versus to Emil and Lala, or if there was a specific reason that Rosea needs. Because to me, it would seem like if you wanted to keep it consistent, the choice would be to then make Rosea third person as well, because I don't think it would have, I think it would have been harder to make Lala's point of view first person and keep the sort of not that it's trying to be super duper historically accurate but there's there's a a sort of tone and a a language that if you go too modern it pulls you out of it so I I think 
if you were trying to keep it consistent, your your option might be then to make Rosea's point of view third person, but she is first person. And I don't know why, and I don't know what it adds or what it takes away. I just wanted to talk about it. My only thought, and this might be nothing, and I'm just reading too far into it. Obviously, I do not know. I did not write the book. Maybe it is that, like you, like she, she's so Rosea is Mexican American, and Macklemore is also, and so they are writing from more of their cultural perspective versus writing what is actually like a very intimate kind of exploration of what being Romani would mean in a modern day time, um, and maybe not feeling comfortable writing that from a first perspective or first person perspective. I don't know. Is that a thing that like writers yeah. consider? Yeah, that was that was the only like reason for that that I could come up with on my own was I have access to this first person intimately because this is my culture and some of these experiences I am drawing from my own versus I do not have access to that when it is Emil and Lala. Um, I can't think of any books off the top of my head that have that sort of like I'm choosing to do third person because I don't feel like I can get at that versus I'm choosing to do first person because I really can. I can't think of other books that I know of that do that but that was the only thought that I could come up with in regards to that specific choice but I mean the only other explanation is like Rosea is truly the protagonist but I don't know if that really feels true yeah. to me Emil feels like the center same Emil and Lala definitely feel like the centerpieces of this book which isn't that Rosea isn't very important but she's more entwined with with Emil and Lala's story than they are with hers, if that makes sense. Well, Emil feels like the common ground between Rosea and yes. Lala. Yeah, yeah. He's the connecting thread for sure. For sure. Well, anyway. <laughs> Expectations? <laughs> um, What did I put for expectations? I put a three. This is where expectations can, can be an issue is that I already know what to expect going into um, these books and it met them. So it isn't going over three for me, which the expectations were high. So it's a good thing. But on a numerical level, it's just a three. So I knew less about this. This was your pick. So I was just kind of like along for the ride. Um, so I gave it a four because I thought it like I read it and I was like the by it. I mean, I read the little synopsis and I was like, oh, this seems interesting. The cover is cute. And then I thought it was better than even, you know, the like this is interesting kind of moment. So I give it a four. I felt like it was you know, above average in terms of expectation to reality. So, but I also didn't have any hype around it. Yeah. Lack of hype can, can really mess with the expectation or, or too much hype can mess with that, that rating. Uh, would you give writing style? I am actually going to change it. <laughs> oh, writing style? Yeah. I think I'm going to give it a four. What, what did you give it originally? I had a 4.5, but we talked more about that balance issue and I'm thinking about it and it bothered me a little bit more than I thought it did. Um, so you're going to take and it I from think that might, Yeah, I think I'm yeah. going to take that from writing style. The like quick short chapters and not feeling like you get to sit in a moment quite as much as I would have wanted to sit in a moment. Um, I mean, it's still a four. They're a very good writer. <laughs> it's very beautiful. Very well written. Um, I really appreciated so... I've mentioned this before. I have strong opinions about historical fiction. Um, and one of my top most important opinions is that it needs to be written for a modern audience. So you don't need to make it sound like, like it 
the people don't need to talk how they would have talked in that time. It just needs to have a little bit more of a formal, what we would consider a formal tone. And I will say, I think um, Macklemore did a really good job with that, like balancing that it, that tone mm-hmm. with the of time it period. of it sounding distinct from, especially because we get to directly compare it to a modern point of view. Um, so Lala's chapters, the sixteen hundreds or the fifteen hundreds chapters, sounded distinct in their tone. And their style from the modern chapters, but they didn't necessarily feel like they were written by different authors. So I think they did a really good job of maintaining cohesiveness and also distinctiveness between the two time periods in a way that did not drive me insane. Because you know, like if you use one too many historical terms, I will I will cut you. I I'm <laughs> you will ruthless explode. with it. You do not you do you have no patience for that, which is fair. I did sort of I did sort of the opposite thing that you did in terms of writing style where I took away from that, the the chapter thing, from balance. And so I'm not going to do anything with it with the writing style. And so I'm keeping my rating of a 4.5 because I just think that the sentence by sentence, like... (sighs) is so gorgeous and the description describes it as lush prose which i think is a bit of an understatement honestly because of how rich the words are and in a weirdly succinct way so i'm just going to read very quickly a passage from earlier on in the book where they're talking about the plague and just let you get you know a a little taste of what i'm talking about delphine spins fastest of them all her feet bleeding the most, her face streaked with dirt and salt. She throws her long arms and thin legs, her skirt flying like spilled milk. She leaps and turns, as though her body is letting loose some spirit within her. Her linen cap has soaked through with sweat. And then there's this section where uh, a few page, a few paragraphs down and still describing her. Oh, cool. Thank you, Kindle, for logging me out. May I see the book that I got? Hold on. It's fine. So this is a few paragraphs down, still talking about Delphine, it says. She carries the look of a saint in stained glass, pained but transcendent, eyes cast toward heaven, as though her body remains among them but her spirit has flown. This is the expression gilding her face the moment before her heart gives. Just like so good and yet so quiet. It doesn't, I don't feel beaten over the head with metaphors and poetic language, but it's there and it's just an undertone of everything. The book feels like, so, first of all, magical realism, like I said, you know I love it. But the whole book does have this, like, sparkling quality to it, right? Like, it just feels, like, special and, like, the kind of like the mood it puts you in. Um, It's a little bit, like, floating. Like, it's a little magic. It's a little, I don't know. I'm having a hard time with words on this of how to describe it. It's like, even if you didn't have these shoes wielding wielding themselves onto Rosea's feet even if you didn't have the weird mist in the town it would still feel like magical realism because of the sentence by sentence feeling of like otherworldliness but also the but like but still so familiar to ours it it's just beautiful yeah it's like dreamlike yeah you know yes yes i've been thinking a lot lately about poetic language and writing style in young adults because in one of my writing classes we were talking about like 
literary fiction and genre fiction and commercial fiction and blah, 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 and stuff like that. And a cool thing I've discovered about myself is that apparently I write in a little bit of a literary way, which is unfortunate because I spent a lot of my sort of college career the past two years kind of poking fun at literary fiction writers because I find it boring. And like I had to read several literary novels for one of the classes I'm in. And it was just so painful for me. And I was like, I can recognize on a logistical, like, like on a, like, I can recognize that these, this is well-written and this is good or whatever. And that this would win awards or whatever, but I'm not enjoying myself and I'm not having fun. And so I've spent a, a while kind of making fun of, of the people who are like, oh, if it isn't literary, then it's bad. Especially when they're talking about like young adult. And one of my teachers was talking about how they do not like how little young adult cares for the sentence by sentence. And so I've been thinking a lot about the idea that young adult as a genre, which not that young adult, the concept of young adult as a genre is kind of nothing, but also something it's very weird. But this idea that writers don't tend to care about the words so much as they care about the plot. And that always kind of bothered me, even though it is true in this in the sense of like, there are books I've read where I'm like, yeah, I can't quote anything from it. There aren't lines that sound beautiful, but things happen in it. And this idea that one is better than the other, I've also been thinking about a lot. And Dark and Deepest Red and all of Anna Marie's other works, I feel like a kind of proof that you don't have to give up one for the other and still be within young adult and within this like this publishing world because all of their all of their writing is things happen things are happening things are happening and it's not just about the word by word but I don't ever feel like the language is being sacrificed for the plot and I don't feel like the other way around either so I've just been thinking a lot about about that idea yeah well that's I mean that's not something I'd ever considered because I have written prose like twice in my life and it was for school assignments and it was bad um but that's so true um I personally like uh, it's the same way I kind of feel about poetry um I don't like things to be too deeply shrouded in metaphor um I'm more of a I like a what's it called when it's like a big theme that represents something what do you mean you know what I mean like 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 it happens throughout the whole book and it represents something. A, um, I like that. Oh god, what's it called? Oh my god, what is it called? I'm gonna die. What is it called? I like can picture my ninth grade English classroom right now. Motif, maybe? Motif, probably close. Yeah. yeah. I like big metaphor. Yeah. I don't tend to like line by line. Um that being said though, I am a bit of a sucker for flowery language. Like I like a quote. So it's a really fine balance for me. Yeah. Um, and I think she does. She hits that really well. Because this isn't a Bay. book where nothing happens. It's not just a bunch of like sitting around feeling things. Like there's a lot. There's a lot of things that happen. Especially when you're looking at the um, Strauss-Bohr uh, timeline. There's a, there's a lot of like. Especially towards the end. Because like people are dying. Um, <laughs> things are happening. People are dying. Things are happening. People are dying. But. I just really appreciated like those things that you read were so dense. They were like the imagery, every single word in those sentences did something and added to it and was integral. Um, and I think that's really what I appreciate. I don't like 
when a book takes too long to get to the point for no reason other than being flowery. I like when that flowery language is actually not extraneous. It is part of building a picture and an image and understanding what it feels like. I think that I I think what we're getting at is both of us like when it's important. I don't want anything there that doesn't matter, you know, which is how I have, which is why I have issues a lot of times with literary novels is because I'm like, I don't totally get why I needed to read this scene and why it mattered to me at all, which is, can, can be my issues with, not just with literary novels, but because I've been reading them for class. That's what I've been thinking about. Yes. I want, I want purple prose if the purple prose is doing things and it's definitely doing things in um, their work. So so yeah, we spent a long time on writing style. What did you put for memorability? I said a four, and this is based solely on the fact that I read it like two weeks ago and I still remember the main characters' names. That does not happen to me very often. Yeah, we're we're neither of us is pretty good at main characters' names and little details. I gave it a three point five. I don't think I'm going to remember this as much as I remember like when the moon was ours, but definitely more than than average so i went with a 3.5 believability um just to kind of start to get through these things because we've, we've really like taken our time here um i gave it a 3.5 with four question marks after it <laughs> that's fair i also gave it a 3.5 what did you give it that for because i'm not convinced that of my rating yet um a couple things um so not to spoil anything but there were some things about the ending that i was like this is like kind of a stretch, but also I liked that it happened. <laughs> so yeah, it was sort of like, I don't know if this is really how it should have gone, but I'm not like mad at it. Yeah. So I think that's where I kind of took off the points. Um, also like, uh, but, but at the same time, I, I, for the most part, thought everything was believable any giant holes you know a lot of it isn't explained but that's part of magicalism is stuff just happens um and so with that being part of what i would expect in the genre it didn't bother me too much like we don't really know why emil has this is able to have this connection with lala we don't know why the glimmer happens in this town but that's like part of the fun um so i'm actually not mad at that but eh, 3.5 slightly above average i don't know it just felt like a uh, it's fine you know <laughs> yeah I mine was a little bit above average because of the fact that like so I thought the characters like reactions and etc cetera, etc cetera, were, were believable but also um, I gave it a little bit more points than just the average because of the fact that I think the the glimmer and the things happening in the town that were not the main like the weird mist that changes stuff and the magic in the town is not the main part of it right like it, it's definitely an inciting thing but it is not what the book is about. This book is not about this Briar Meadows's magic. And the way that it's treated as normal was really interesting to me in the way that it made me believe that these people would just be like, yeah, it just happens. Like there's a line where um, Emil is like, he'd never really, it was, it was, it's him saying like, he'd never really looked at it because like, sure, it looks like the Milky Way and it was beautiful, whatever, but it'd be gone in a week. So whatever. You know, like it, the way that the characters react to the things happening around them that are so not like it's magic. I don't know. I thought that was interesting and I believed it, which I wouldn't like I wouldn't react like that in real life, but I believed it. So I gave it a few more points for that. So what was your overall? 
Boop, ba doop, let me do my calculating because I'm evil. What was your overall while I'm doing this? Uh, 3.92, which like feels right. Like I feel like it was a four star book for me. So yeah, pretty, pretty happy with that. I know it feels like kind of a, uh, sometimes I feel like it's a little silly that we even put balance or uh, believability in because we don't always know how to rate those. But I think yeah. those are important to kind of stabilizing scores. <laughs> they really are. They They are hard to talk about. But I think they're important in in the overall, especially because like the ideal, well, the ideal is for it to have fives across the board. But for most books, it's going to just be like the ballot. I didn't have issues with balance and I didn't have issues with believability, period. And so having that there as a sort of a sort of buffer. All that to say, my total is 3.58. So what's our whole total? A solid 3.75. Noise. That feels pretty good, right? Noise. Yeah, that, that checks out with like the other 21 books we've reviewed, yeah. which also that's like a lot. We've reviewed a lot of books. We've been doing yeah. some stuff. We missed our one year anniversary because you were looking at Bones, um, but that's okay because we're getting a new look. We're getting a makeover. It's going to be good. It's going to be fun. I'm excited. Speaking of, yeah. what are we reading for our weird makeover? Um, I lost the tab that it was on. Nice. <laughs> Solid. We are reading for the like kind of relaunch of our show. We are going to be reading Early Departures by Justin A. Reynolds, um, which is, from my understanding, a book about a teen whose best friend dies, but then comes back temporarily. Um, Get some more magical realism-esque mm-hmm. stuff going on. Yeah, but also friendship. But also friendship. And, also and friendship. I imagine grief. Yeah, I think that's probably a big theme, too. Yeah, yeah. One, one would think. One would think. I'm excited. It's been on my um, my TBR, and it's it's been on my radar for a while. So I'm excited to have an excuse to to get around to it. So yeah, it looks good. I'm excited too. That will be happening on the 23rd of November. So basically a month from now. Yeah, part of our rebrand is going down to once a month because I just cannot do more than once a month. It's just too much, and that's okay. I'm going to start getting, well, maybe I'll start getting busy soon. I really thought I was going to be way more busy with, like, writing things going on this semester. So I did not take a lot of, like, a lot of classes. I didn't fill my schedule up too much. And then on top of the fact that I'm taking one less class than usual, the classes are just really easy right now, I guess, because it's, like, half online. And so I just, I have a lot of time, but hopefully I will be, a little bit more uh, productive and doing things going forward. So, you know, anyway. But yeah, this is a longer episode. We're going to have to <laughs> trim it a bit. I'm going to cut out a lot um, of me just saying bullshit, so it's okay. <laughs> no, we like that. Thank you. <laughs> but, uh, you know, thanks for listening. Tune in. We're going to be reading. I've already forgotten it. Early Departures. We're going to be reading Early Departures by Justin A. Reynolds next month. So, And we're going to be debuting like a new format, new situation. Like a new so. thing, a new, a new style, new fit, new look. Yeah. It'll be exciting. Join us. New hat. Our makeover moment in, in the teen movie. Did you say new hat? I did. I like that. We have a new hat. I did, I did say yeah. new hat. So. New shoes. <laughs> so, All right. Thank you for tuning in. And thank we you. We will be here again next month. All right. Bye. Bye.